0: You are listening to Tough Island, Maine on WERU Community Radio, 89.9 on your FM dial, serving mid-coast, down-east, and central Maine and on the internet at WERU.org. Warning, these true stories may not be appropriate for children. Listener discretion is advised. Some names have been changed to protect the innocent and the guilty. Additional content warning. This episode contains domestic violence and animals dying. (coughs) Chapter 11 My name is Crashberry, and for two years, when I was a much younger man, I lived on Matinicus, Maine's most remote inhabited island. A couple of years living in a fish shack didn't make me an expert on Matinicus, but it was a long enough immersion to recognize the distinctive nature of the island, to see beyond the myth and the hype, to study a unique society with a wannabe writer's brain filtered through a thick lens of drugs, <laughs> youth, and hard work. My time on Matinakis taught me an important lesson. Be careful on Tough Island. Like I mentioned in the last episode, my window in Captain Edwin's shack overlooked a deserted isle. Wheaton island a mere hundred yards from Edwin's Wharf. Ten acres of rock and spruce with a foursome of weather-beaten structures built so ruggedly that abandonment couldn't destroy them. A flock of sick sheep called Wheaton's home and lived among the ruins of the settlement, grazing on the scrub grass above the tide line. They foraged and browsed among the vegetation that grew in pockets near the small stand of trees able to take root on the bony island. The sheep wandered freely, leaving droppings everywhere. They stayed out of the largest building, though. A long two-story rickety boat shop filled with broken glass, old net, and an ancient and beautiful 20-foot boat sitting in a cradle left behind and long forgotten. The sheep were owned by Captain Red, who, as we learned in the last episode, I watched Captain Red toss two full plastic trash bags into the rising tide on the way to his mooring. Captain Red is rumored to be linked to an outlaw motorcycle gang. Captain Red is a known thief, liar, and bully. Anyways, it used to be common to leave sheep on main islands to grow them into mutton. And even though I couldn't stand Captain Red, that lying, stealing, thieving son of a bitch, I appreciated that he put the sheep on Wheaton's Island. From my vantage point they lived a pretty awesome life they were curious and carefree and a little numb they were enamored with a long piece of frayed rope tied to a davit on the old wharf the rope fluttered and flapped whenever the breeze blew so on windy afternoons i'd sit in front of the typewriter ignoring my poetry hypnotized by the sheep that were hypnotized by a wiggling piece of rope. My pal Tommy loved Claire, who worked the lunch wagon, the island's only restaurant. Problem was, Claire was married to Captain Todd, who happened to be Tommy's captain. A complicated triangle. Tommy and Claire never consummated their romance, though. Hey, Claire, how you doing? And I witnessed their playful flirtation at the lunch wagon. You look nice today. All summer long. Thank you. She smiled at him and batted her eyelashes. Did you have a nice day? He blushed back. It was okay, I guess. Tommy, as a bachelor stern man, welcomed almost any sort of female attention. Do you want cheese on that? They'd stare longingly at each other while Claire's three-year-old son, (laughs) a blonde hellion with a bowl cut, slurped on the lunch wagon's ketchup bottle like it was his mother's teat. To be blunt, The lunch wagon was disgusting. An ice cream truck in a former life. The vehicle had no engine or brakes or steering wheel. Every surface in the lunch wagon was coated with thick grease and grime. Claire worked the grill, griddle, and small deep fat fryer. From 11 a.m. until 1 p.m. Then she'd reopen around 5 to serve supper, staying until she'd fed everyone who was hungry. Burgers were two bucks. Dogs, fries, and ice-cold sodas were a dollar. No captain would eat there because they had wives at home to feed them. I never ate the meat from the lunch wagon, but occasionally After a long day of hauling traps, I'd order the french fries. Yeah, why don't you give me uh, two orders of fries? The other fellas mowed down multiple sliders before we all headed to Benny and Paul's fish house for an herbal happy hour. (laughs) Where we'd blast tunes Play ping-pong. Yeah, man. And smoke tons of weed. (coughs) Although we were a band of merry jokesters, nobody ever teased Tommy about Claire. Maybe because we realized their flirting was something different, dangerous, and sad. So the topic was off-limits. Tommy was a nice dude, a shaggy 20-year-old stoner from Portland, and everyone hated Captain Todd. Even his wife hated him. She hates him. Tommy confided his feelings to me after a long night of beer, whiskey, and weed. And she said she hates living on the island. Away from her family and friends in Rockland. She felt isolated. Well, I'm in love with her, I think. Captain Todd made her tell people they were husband and wife. They're not actually married, Tommy said. So that's probably good. The little boy was Todd, so Claire didn't have many options. Captain Todd was a know-it-all loudmouth who barely knew his stem from his stern. Captain Todd was always losing lobster gear. And when we're hauling at high tide, we can't find the buoys. Tommy complained about the many hours wasted driving back and forth, looking for the strings of traps that Todd had misplaced. And as the stern man, Tommy had to pay the price financially. He wastes so much time and diesel. We all earned 15% of the catch, after bait and fuel costs were deducted. Paul and I were pulling six or seven hundred bucks a week. I made about three hundred and ten bucks. I wonder if he's ripping me off. Claire had warned Tommy that was possible. They were having money troubles, barely making ends meet. That's why she was working the lunch cart. Thirty bucks in cash a day turned into a couple hundred a week. Eight hundred a month. Not bad for an island part-time job. One Sunday morning, late that summer, Claire came down to the shore, looking for Tommy. I came to say goodbye. Both of her eyes were blackened and swelled. I want to kill him. But Claire calmed him down. It's good that he did this. It gives me a reason to leave the island, to go home to Rockland. I'm going to miss you, though. I'm going to miss you too, big time. Captain Todd left the island the following week and started tending his traps from the mainland. Tommy lucked out because he soon found another sternman job for a better captain and stayed on the island for another year and made some real money. The sheep had been attacked by a pack of Matinicus dogs that crossed the gut at low water to invade Wheaton's island. After a long day of hauling traps, Captain Edwin and I were coming ashore from the mooring and heard a bleating wail of distress from Wheaton. I dropped Captain Edwin off at the ladder, then rowed the skiff across and landed on the island's stony beach. The tide was halfway to high, the wind was whispering from the southeast, and a sheep was screaming. I followed the cries toward the island's southern tip, where there's a series of rock shelves and crevasses. And that's where I found her. The sheep's hind legs were jammed in a crack between two ledges. Her face was mauled. Her wool was blackened with blood from a gaping chest wound. Her front legs dangled at an impossible angle. I bent and wedged my hands beneath the bleating sheep's shoulders. I tugged and tugged, but the ledge would not let go. I shifted my grip, lower, and tugged again. Suddenly, she broke free of the ledge, and the two of us tumbled to the ground. I got up. She continued to squirm and weep. She needed to be put out of her misery. What could I do? One option was to row back to Mateus and find a gun to borrow. Or grab a sharp knife from my shack. And then what? Slash her throat? I bent over again to pick her up and slung her over my shoulder. She was much lighter than I expected. More wool than meat. I walked to the shore and into the rising tide right up to my boot tops and I dropped the animal into the water on her back. She barely moved other than her mouth which was opening and closing below the water line chewing almost. Then I tried to drown her. I knelt on one knee, grabbed the sheep's head with both hands and pushed down, intent on drowning her in the rising tide. Then the fight began. She bucked and flailed and kicked, frantically trying to free herself from my grip. I stood and tried to drag the thrashing beast to deeper water, to hasten the execution to end her suffering. But my boots were heavy with ocean, and I staggered and slipped and fell into the rising tide. God damn it! And then the sheep, suddenly free of her attacker, bobbed to the surface, (laughs) wheezing and gasping for air. I was soaked chest to toe, and I grabbed and dragged the sheep closer to the shore. And I was standing above her in a couple of feet of water, and I lifted my right boot, still heavy with ocean, and placed it on her skull. She bared her teeth as I shifted all my weight onto her head. Then I placed my left boot on her neck, and I stood still, as the tide climbed towards my knees, and the poor sheep, exhausted, barely struggled. I don't know how long it took, but finally she died, and I stepped backwards in her head's surface. I couldn't leave her carcass floating in the surf to be picked at by gulls. And now that the Metinicus dog's new cornered prey lived on Wheaton's they'd be back for more now that they've had a taste of blood. And if they found her corpse, they'd eat it. Or at least her guts. And that was too painful of a thought for me to handle. I decided a burial at sea was necessary. I found a crushed and twisted lobster trap on the beach with about ten fathoms of rope attached. I half filled the trap with rocks for extra ballast, put it in the stern of the skiff, and lashed the sheep to the trap. I launched the boat and rowed out through the gut and into Old Cove. Rowing wasn't easy against the tide and with the extra load of rocks and sheep. But I pulled and pulled and pulled until I was several hundred yards off the shore. I half stood and without ceremony wrestled the corpse over the side followed by the rock-filled trap. For a couple of seconds, the dead sheep floated on the surface. A lone eye staring at me. Then the rocks took over. I cried as the trap sank, pulling the sheep into the deep, into the deep, into the, deep, into the The next day, I was on the wharf watching the remaining five sheep graze. Three men and a young island boy, who suffered from a serious respiratory illness, pulled up in a pickup truck and then gathered about 50 feet away from me. The uncle handed the boy a rifle with a scope, and the boy aimed and fired. A sheep dropped to the ground. colleagues continued to graze oblivious to the danger. More bullets flew. One by one they died and when the shooting was over and all the sheep were dead, One of the fellas yelled to me, Martin! The morning of the schoolteacher's marriage to an island girl was misty, warm and wet. By 8 a.m., it was raining hard, real hard. Around 9 a.m., the wind came up and blew the fog away, but the rain and rough seas lingered. At noon, Captain Edwin and I were back in the harbor. The moment I grabbed the mooring, The storm disappeared, the clouds moved off, and the sun came out shining. We were only hauling for half the day because Captain Edwin and I had both been invited to the wedding. Captain Edwin, of course, had known the bride since she was born, and the schoolteacher and I were buddies. He was a couple years older, and wiser, and we shared an interest in books, public radio, and whiskey. Good evening, this is Main Things Considered. I'm Andrea DeLeon. Hey Tom, the news is starting. And I'm Barbara Carritti. Also this evening, Maine courts consider whether a personal diary can be used as evidence against its author. Those stories and more after this Maine news from Keith McKean. The Wedding Ceremony and sweet and traditional was held in the island's lone church. The only surprise was the appearance of this freshly shorn dude, pink-cheeked and sheepish, who escorted the bride's mom to her church pew. The stranger seemed familiar, but I could not recall meeting him. At the reception, the mystery was solved. It was my pal Sam. Sam, I didn't even recognize you, dude. The older brother of the bride, a lobsterman who lived in a fish house among towers of comic books, a herd of feral cats, and bags of Wonder Bread. Sam had a well-known aversion to showers, shaving, and other social conventions, But I gotta admit, he cleaned up real nice. (laughs) The reception was a fine outdoor feast on the west side of the island, held under the bluest of blue skies. (laughs) Captain Edwin and I showed up Wearing identical dark blue suits, white shirts, and matching red pattern neckties. Where'd you get your suit, Edwin? A social faux pas that amused the other lobstermen. Wyatt Coffin's men's and boys' clothing, of course. 389 Main Street, Rockland. Where else would a man buy himself a sharp outfit like this? Liked it so much, I got one for my stern man, too. <laughs> The distance between the bride's and groom's tribes was vast. There was no mingling at first, though everyone knew this marriage would last. The bride was smart and funny, a recent graduate of Humane. Her father was one of the kindest lobstermen on the island. Her mother was a gentle, talented painter of sea and landscapes. Her family was genuine and generous, one of the rare families not involved in any island feud. The school teacher was smart and great with kids. He was a scion of a literary family. Both his parents were respected editors and writers for national publications. His older brother was attracting acclaim for his non-fiction environmental and nature books. Several guests were also movers and shakers in the New York and Boston literate scenes. (coughs) Matinicus Islanders hated big city writers almost as much as the Islanders despised cops. Matinicus Islanders had been frequently portrayed poorly in the media, cast either as party-eccentrics rugged enough to survive on a quaint island with no stores or restaurants, or depicted as outlaw cowboys bent on revenge. To my knowledge, the schoolteacher's brother hadn't written anything about Matinakis. I'd read his books and some of his magazine work and was impressed. And here I was. 20 miles offshore, a young man on a little island with dreams of being a writer. Unfortunately, I was too shy to even approach the fellow. I just watched from the sidelines as he and his posse enjoyed themselves. (laughs) As the beautiful afternoon turned into a cloudless night, everyone headed to the schoolhouse. And the music began. Two brave couples hit the dance floor and broke the ice. Their enthusiasm spread and others joined them. Eventually, even the wallflowers started to swing and sway. Soon, the whole school was moving and grooving. It was a sight to behold. There, in the middle of this remote island, You're dancing to the music of the hottest DJ around. City slickers danced with stern men. Geniuses danced with idiots. Enemies drank together and laughed. <laughs> Everyone was high one way or the other. Hey, anybody want to get high? Uh, yeah, that sounds like a very good idea. I went outside with some of the big city visitors to smoke them up and show them what the sky, untainted by light pollution, really looked like. That's some good marijuana. I agree. The dance lasted late, especially for islanders used to rising before dawn. But the next day was a Sunday, so there'd be no lobstering anyway. Besides, we were all having such a great time. No one wanted the party to end. No one the party no to end end. One of the party the Tough Island is written, produced, and voiced by Crash Barry. That's me. Tough Island, Maine is based on the book Tough Island. Visit CrashBerry.com for other episodes of Tough Island, Maine, For more information about my books, or my podcast, Devils and Dirtbags. Season 1 is a true crime investigation of evil priests and their protectors. And remember, be careful on Tough Island.